0: As you remain standing, I encourage you to take your copy of God's Holy Word and open with me to Ephesians, and the first chapter there. And I'll begin reading here in a moment, as soon as it appears in my Bible. All right, you have your copy of God's Word. Hear now the Word of God, beginning at verse 15. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Let's pray. A gracious heavenly Father, as we come before you and, and hear and meditate upon the words of scripture that you have given to us. We give you thanks and humbly acknowledge that we are greatly blessed to have the very word of God so near and so accessible. We thank you for your perfect sovereign faithfulness. Confessing our weakness, we are thankful that neither our salvation nor the ultimate victory of Christ is dependent upon any strength or wisdom found in our flesh, but is solely the power and might of our living God. We thank you for the church, for making us a part of that church, and for sanctifying us and making known to us that great mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Fill us with your Spirit, and lead us before your truth, and equip us for more faithful service to our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, as we pray now in his mighty name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the title of this message this morning is The Church's Authority, and you may be thinking if you're looking at that title and the text that we just read, what, what's going on here? This doesn't look like one of those authority texts, but as I was talking with Mary Susan actually this morning, checking in on her. Um, she pointed out a, a great correlation that I think might be helpful to frame how we're thinking about the text before us and the message, even, even before we get into it. For those of you who are on the email list, you, you get those great, encouraging, and regular emails from our brother Kelly, and he quotes in his, his signature line there from brother Andrew this, God invites us to influence our community, our nation, and the world to literally direct history while we're on our knees. And so we have this text which reveals to us Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesus. And I see a great correlation between this quote from Brother Andrew and what I'm trying to bring to our attention this morning. And so as we begin, it would seem if we took an informal survey of the ecclesiastical, that is the church landscape of our day, that respect for church authority has all but vanished. Outside the church, her prophetic voice to the people and to the governments is often mocked and drowned out by the loud sound of the secular humanist and even the rank pagans in our midst. Within the church, many professing Christians think that their private lives are are no business of the church. Church censures up to and including excommunication from a local body is hardly ever taken seriously since it rarely prevents someone from joining the church next door where no questions are asked. When a church is faithful to the word of God and proclaims from the pulpit the sinfulness of of sodomy, of abortion, of lying, transgenderism, or any of the untold number of abhorrent ills that we find in society, Sadly, it is fairly easy for someone who is offended by such preaching to find a church just down the road that embraces all of those things. So many, it would seem, if they want a church at all, seek a church that conforms to their desires and wants and affirms them even in their sin. Several phenomena explain this sad reality, I believe. The churches. Fragmentation makes it easy to move from one denomination to another. Some church leaders exalt numerical growth and will not ask hard questions of the people in the pews for fear of learning a fact that would bar somebody from membership. Furthermore, individualism and the way our culture falsely divides our private and personal lives makes it hard to honor the authority of Christ's church. And so questions relating to the spiritual state of a prospective member are not even entertained. Yet our private sins are the church's business and her care and her counsel and her judgments when they conform to scripture are divinely authorized. It was Cyprian, a third century North African bishop known for his leadership and devotion to Christ church, who spoke these words He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. John Calvin teases out what this metaphor means in his Institutes on the Christian Religion, pointing out that God uses the church to bring us into spiritual life in the same way that a mother conceives children in her womb. He continues to use the church to sustain us in the Christian life, just as a mother cares for her children All her days. Our weakness, Calvin writes, does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. The point being made is that the church serves a maternal purpose. And of course, we receive the original reference to the church as a mother from Galatians 4, where Paul writes, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. But Calvin goes even further with this metaphor, adding, Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. Those who will not find their place in the church are those who are rejected by God himself, no matter what they claim. The church is God's appointed place and means for sustaining believers in the Christian life. Outside her ministry... There is no ordinary possibility of salvation. This confessional language is in right accord with Acts 2.47 where we read, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When we are added to the church, we are like a baby placed at his mother's breast, receiving the milk of the word so that we may grow up into spiritual maturity in Christ we have a new and permanent identity in the family of god what the preacher says in ecclesiastes 3:14 gets at the heart of the matter writing i know that whatever god does it shall be forever nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it when god does a work of salvation and with when god does a work of salvation it is all of god It is enduring and nothing can be added or taken from it. And with that salvation, along with that salvation, He provides the means to sustain and nurture the saving faith of every soul. We are complete in Christ. Don't hear what I'm saying to say anything other than we are complete in Christ. And we live then our lives submitting to his lordship over all things and grow up in spiritual maturity. Just as a little baby learns to use all of his facilities from babbling to speaking, from rolling over to crawling to walking to running, so we too grow up in this new life that we have been given. As we grow up, our continued response is to be that which we find in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Brothers and sisters, as you have been born again, you may be certain that God has woven you into his eternal plan. Having placed his divine love upon you, having known you before the foundations of the earth, this is a cosmic reality that we must come to terms with when you realize that this inheritance is planned for you, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven, it changes your whole perspective. Not your position in Christ, but your perspective of Christ. When you realize that all these things are yours in Christ, that you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, then you see that the Lord uses you to accomplish His holy will quite apart, quite apart from any wisdom or planning or strategy that you, in your flesh, bring to the table. I hope by now you're starting to wonder, what does this rambling introduction have to do with the church's authority? That's a good question, and perhaps I can begin to answer that by by acknowledging what I believe to be an ever-present challenge to the church especially to the more serious-minded, dominion-focused, roll-up-your-sleeves-there's-work-to-do segments of the church. And I embrace all of that, by the way. All of Christ for all of life, absolutely. I don't believe there are any members here that see the church as that part of life where we spend a couple of hours each week, and then there's the rest of life, the important part. No, We know that our lives are interwoven into the church and and that faith is to be exercised 24-7. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. We know that there are no areas of our lives hidden from or independent of our creator God. We know that Christ is all and in all. But sometimes, almost all the time, Our faith is weak, and we are impatient, and we really like to see immediate results, and so we confuse priorities. We get the cart before the horse, as it were, and we forget who is in charge and what he requires of us. We even at times pit reason against revelation. We are unsure of authority, and if authority is brought to bear that we don't fully agree with, we can tend to bristle and bite And this resistance to authority runs deep and starts at an early age. As one of our local in the heritage body philosophers is wont to say, when we run into authority, our first response is often one of, you're not the boss of me. And that authority, just to be clear, could be the plain word of God, a message preached, a pastor's exhortation, an iron-sharpening iron word from a true friend, or even an inconvenient red light. As Paul is writing this beautiful letter to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, there is an overwhelming emphasis on the preeminence of Christ This is a pattern that must inform and motivate all authority that the church exercises, both within and without, and our responses to that authority. It must also inform and motivate the individual's exercises of authority. And so as we consider the church's authority, that is what I want us to focus on, the preeminence of Christ. And let's do so. Exploring the following four propositions. The church's authority is derived, not assumed. The church's authority is ministerial, not magisterial. The church's authority is, authority is declarative, not legislative. And the church's authority is spiritual. First, the church's authority is derived, not assumed. I believe it was Francis Schaeffer who taught that we need to always define our terms since people use and define the same word in different ways. To that end, one dictionary definition of authority is the power to determine, adjudicate, or otherwise settle issues or disputes, jurisdiction, the right to control, command, or determine. And the second definition is a power or right delegated or given. It will come as no surprise to anyone here, as the head of the church, Christ, Christ is the supreme authority in the church. There is no other. He has the power to determine, adjudicate, and settle disputes within the church. He has complete jurisdiction over the church and the right to control, command, and determine all that she is what she teaches, how she operates, what is right and what is wrong, and how she is to worship him. And church's authority, therefore, is derived from Jesus. We recall that in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church has been given keys to that which she does not own. That authority represented in the keys, a derivative authority nonetheless, has been given to the church, and that authority is directly tied to a responsibility and an obligation to the stewardship of the truths of Scripture. The true church can be identified by those who confess the lordship of Christ and who stand on the authority and the truths of Scripture. As one pastor puts it, truth is an essential, authenticating mark of the church. It is non-negotiable. This means that there are religious organizations out there that claim to be Christian, that have the name Christian, that are actually not churches because they do not meet this minimal scriptural requirement. We can all probably easily think of churches out there that have all the right inscriptions on the stained-glass windows. They have all the right mottos printed on plaques and retain scriptural truths in their creeds and confessions. They have right doctrines in the constitution of the church, but no one believes them anymore. And her designated leaders, charged with stewarding, promoting, protecting, and proclaiming those truths, have abandoned their post, and the church gets swallowed up by the world. We saw this in action just this past week in the Church of England. The Church of England will not authorize same-sex marriages, but will permit clergy to bless same-sex unions. This is moral insanity and theological suicide. In this case, the church is failing miserably in her duty to submit to her head, choosing instead to assume authority in direct opposition to Christ's authority. A church that does not stand upon the truth of Scripture alone is a church that is powerless and without authority. Too few churches, sadly, are willing to say, thus saith the Lord. The Christian principle of biblical authority means, on the one hand, that God proposes purposes to direct the belief and behavior of his people through the revealed truth set forth in Holy Scripture. And on the other hand, it means that all of our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to the biblical record. Our triune God made us to know, love, and serve him And his way of exercising his authority over us is by means of the truth and the wisdom of his written word. Each book in scripture was written to induce a more consistent and wholehearted service to God. The word of God is our only rule of faith in life. And since the God, God the Father has now given God the Son executive authority to rule the cosmos on his behalf. (coughs) Remember that great commission passage we meditated upon at the start of this service. Scripture now functions precisely as the instrument of Christ's lordship over his followers. Any church that does not fully accept Scripture's authority has ceded her authority to the world, and Christ is no longer preeminent. To summarize, Christ is the head of the church. He has given the keys of the kingdom to the church The inspired, inerrant, infallible scriptures alone are the alone instrument of Christ's lordship over the church. The church's authority is derived from her Lord Jesus Christ, and she is found faithful in that authority only as she is found faithful to the scriptures. The second proposition is that the church's authority is ministerial, not magisterial. The magisterial use of authority is when reason when reason stands over and above the Scripture like a magistrate and judges it on the basis of argument and evidence. The ministerial use of authority occurs when reason submits to and serves the Scriptures. As Scripture alone is our only and final authority in all matters, only the ministerial use of authority is legitimate. Philosophy has rightly been called the handmaid of theology Reason is a tool to help us better understand and define our faith. As Anselm put it, our faith is, ours is a faith that seeks understanding. A person may be drawn to the church because of the beauty he sees or the, the positive effect of the church has had on culture, but this cannot serve as the basis of his saving faith. His faith must be founded upon the Word of God and its mission to the Word of God or it will quickly fail or be corrupted with his own subjective judgments. Support for this understanding may be clearly seen in Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. Given the fallen depravity of our minds, we absolutely, we absolutely must submit to the truth of God's word. And in the God's word is where the hope of the gospel is found and only found. If we allow reason to be the judge of what is right and wrong, we are in essence professing to be wise and so become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made after our own image. While it is true that God's works can be perceived by our five senses, his true character and the fullness of his will, by contrast, can only be known by the revelation of Holy Scripture. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55. The word magisterial sounds very Roman Catholic, and it is. Let's not fool ourselves and think that there is not an abundance, however, of magisterial authority that pervades the modern evangelical and Protestant churches today. Recalling the definition, the magisterial use of authority occurs when reason stands over and above the gospel like a magistrate and judges it on the basis of argument and evidence. Where do we see this in the church? This magisterial authority is being brought to bear wherever we find such things as the abandoning of the historical view of creation wherever we find women or homosexuals in the office of elder, a denial of the virgin birth, a denial of Christ's resurrection and his miracles, extra-biblical requirements for salvation, speaking in tongues or what have you. And the list goes on and on and on. Anytime the church diminishes, augments, Or disregards the clear teaching of Scripture based upon extra biblical argument or influence, the church is abandoning her ministerial authority. She has taken her eyes off Christ and fixed them upon something or someone else. The third proposition is that the church's authority is declarative, not legislative. As the church confesses Jesus Christ as her Lord and submits to the authority of his revealed word alone, we must constantly reform our faith and practice by nothing but the scriptures. The church's authority is found in that which God has declared in his word and in declaring that same word to his people. Of course, interpretation of his word and how to understand and apply the doctrines we find in scripture are subject to human error. And this implies, this applies to the historic confessions and to the determinations of church councils. Therefore, every doctrine, every dispute, every opinion must be subject to examination and correction by the word of God. This stands in stark contrast to the Roman Catholic Church Magisterium, that teaching authority of the Pope and the bishops of the Church, which includes the power to make infallible interpretations of the Scriptures. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church is that the Magisterium holds the power to establish new doctrines outside of what the Scriptures teach. This is an exercise of legislative authority. For example, the scriptures nowhere teach that God intervened to protect Mary from inheriting original sin. Nevertheless Pope Pius IX legislated the doctrine of Mary's Immaculate Conception to be official Roman Catholic dogma in 1854. An affirmation of the church's declarative authority as opposed to legislative authority is captured well by the Confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. As Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, but even if we... Or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It is a weak, anemic, immature, or rebellious church that longs for another gospel, that seeks authority outside of Scripture. When we fail to see the preeminence of Christ, the power and sufficiency of Christ, we quickly look for new teachers with new doctrines. But as Paul wrote to the Galatians who were giving ear to these false teachers, I marvel, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. No church body may make laws to bind the conscience of her members, and when she does, she is perverting the gospel of Christ. The ministerial use of power has to do with applying, applying the scriptures to specific cases. When the session of a church disciplines someone for sin or when a church council seeks to address a theological controversy. The church does not legislate doctrine. It does not create new doctrine. Instead, the church is to apply or minister to doctrine that scriptures teach. One of the keys of the kingdom that Christ gives to the churches for for binding and for loosing is the key of discipline. We cannot come to a saving knowledge of God through nature, intuition, or reason. The only way we can know God's will is through the way he declared it to us through his word, and through his sacraments. And this is another key of doctrine, the key, uh, key of discipline, keys to the kingdom, the key of doctrine. Of course, limiting church authority to ministerial and declarative authority significantly diminishes the range of that authority. Still, the church does have authority, and the church must exercise that authority. The authority of the church is in the authority of the Word of God. There is power in the reading and the preaching of God's Word, and there is real power in the administration of the sacraments. When we declare God's Word by reading it, when we minister God's Word through preaching and the sacraments, King Jesus exercises His authority over the church. Therefore, we must bind the consciences to God's Word. And this gets us back to why private sins are the church's business. As the church brings God's word to bear and binds a person's conscience, according to that word, she is proclaiming Christ's right to reign as king over his church. She is also feeding and healing and protecting the whole of the church, the whole flock of God. We find this exhortation from Paul to the pastor's. In Acts 20, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Would that the Church of England were attending to their duty and "...being good overseers and shepherds of the flock, according to God's holy word." Pastors, in particular, must bring the word to bear in their shepherding and in their personal lives. Peter exhorts the elders in his first epistle to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge." but being examples to the flock. This oversight and shepherding of the flock is to be loving, motivated by love, rendered unto Jesus and in full accord with the truths of Scripture. The church is not to bind consciences according to her own varied and changing opinions. Church power is not legislative and magisterial, and she has no right to usurp the authority of King Jesus on this earth. Instead, she ministers God's word. She declares God's word. And as she does so, the good shepherd leads his flock by his own voice into salvation and into green pastures. And that brings us to the fourth and final proposition. And that is what, that the church's authority is spiritual. And that brings us back to our text as well. As Paul reveals his prayer for the Ephesian church, he opens, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Allow yourself just for a moment to enter into the spirit-wrought revelation of the apostles' prayerful response. After greeting the saints in the opening of this letter and giving an exalted declaration of the redemptive purposes of Christ and pointing them to the glory and riches of His grace, Paul reveals his prayer for them. After hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Their faith in Jesus and the evidence of their love to all the saints fills him with thanksgiving in his prayers. We should pray this way. We should be thankful for the grace of God and the faith of the saints as we pray. And we should do this often. Then Paul transitions to his petitions. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Paul prays that God would be pleased to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of their understanding would be opened wider and enlightened. He wants them to have this spirit of revelation so that they may grow in the knowledge of Christ. This is a prayer for spiritual wisdom to see Christ more clearly, as He truly is. And this is a work of the Spirit of God. We cannot truly know Christ apart from this great work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this should be one of our regular, passionate prayers, individually and corporately. As Paul prays for the church to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ he is praying for the church's primary need and primary source of authority, and that is the spiritual knowledge of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God and His wisdom and revelation is not seen by the physical eye. You, you can read and hear God's revelation till you are blue in the face, and if the eyes of your heart are not enlightened, you will not see and savor the beauty and the sweetness of God's wisdom and revelation. You will not know God. So why does Paul present this petition before God? That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of Christ so that they may know who they are in Christ and know the riches of his glory, his inheritance, and the greatness of his power toward them. It is all about Christ and his glory. It is not, first and foremost, about overthrowing Roman authorities or promoting more biblical legislation. It is not a cultural or ethical doctrine of manifest destiny. Their great need, our great need, is the church's perpetual great need, and that is to know more of the glory of Christ and Him crucified, to know more of His great power in the inheritance of the saints. And what is the greatness of Christ's power toward those who believe? His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Friends, never, never diminish the glory and power and might and dominion of Christ Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the author of life, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the Prince of Peace, the Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word that was in the beginning and was with God and was God. This is Christ who loves the church and gave Himself for for her so that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present To himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And wasn't wasn't it interesting as we, as Pastor Lovett read that passage from Deuteronomy 17? All those warnings about the king, what were going to be his temptations? To multiply horses, to multiply wives, to multiply gold and silver. These were negative warnings. And so what was the positive admonition? To write a copy of the law for himself. To be directed and in submission to God's holy word. The church exercises her spiritual authority in bringing to bear the word of God in the lives of all the redeemed. In shining the bright light of the truth of scripture into the darkest crevices of our hearts in sanctifying us out of our besetting and even unknown sins, even sins that we are not aware of or don't see as sins. And God uses the church as a means of sanctifying grace through His Word. The Word preached, the sacraments, the Word of God teaches, it reproves, it corrects and trains us. Sometimes this comes through the preaching ministry. Sometimes the fellowships of the saints disciplines us. And sometimes a brother or a pastor must come alongside and point you to Jesus and call you to repentance. It behooves all of us to receive this exercise of such spiritual authority, such mighty spiritual authority in all humility. Even desiring the cleansing, sanctifying work of the word to be applied to our hearts and to our lives. And we should receive in such a way this authority, that those who bring it may do so with joy and not with grief. Would that the church today would desire, appreciate, and pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Would that every church church would have confidence in the spiritual authority she has been given to Christ Jesus and be found faithful in her calling. For this is the Jesus that has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And said, go therefore and make disciples to all, of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. This is the authority given to the church. This is our mission and our daily work. It's not just a calling to make converts, by the way. It's much richer and much deeper and much broader than that. It entails disciple-making. It includes baptizing new members into the church, the body of Christ. It requires teaching those same members to observe, to keep, preserve, and hold fast to all of Christ's commands. And it comes with Christ's promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you imagine being present for the Great Commission. Such a small band of believers are to now go and do what the human mind knows is impossible that they cannot even imagine in their own strength because it is impossible in our own strength. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God put all things without exception under Christ's feet so that as the sovereign ruler, he might assert his truth and right and power And wisdom in all the universe and fill all things with his kingly glory. But not apart from the church. The verse goes on. God put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. God did not exalt Jesus and subject all things to him and then simply say, Now go ahead and fill the universe with your glory. Fill all things with yourself. Instead, he raised him. And he exalted him and subjected all things under him, and then made him one with the church. And this he does to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Do you want God to heal this sin sick land? Then humble yourself before the living God, repent of your sins, and seek his face in prayer. Do you want to see the kingly glory of Christ in this community? Then, first, clothe yourself in spiritual armor that equips you for the real battle, which is spiritual. Are you worried about tomorrow, six months from now? Then seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that is needed shall be added to you. The church's authority is spiritual because the battle is spiritual. And as she faithfully ministers and declares the word of God, she is equipping all the saints to effectively love, serve, and bring glory to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is his. He alone is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and for the the great privilege we have to worship you and be be called of you. We thank you for life and for family and for work and all the blessings you have poured out upon your church. We thank you you for gifting us with every necessary gift that we may edify the body and, and beautify everything around us with the gospel. We thank you for the hope which is laid up for us in heaven. And we look to you, asking for the strength we need to face every battle and the grace for every good work you have ordained. Sanctify us individually and corporately. Sanctify our families and use us according to your good purposes and plans. And this we ask for the glory of our God for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of our victorious Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen.